Father, everything we have, everything we are, and everything we do is from you, and we thank you so much for that. And Father, just today, we just ask for your blessing. We ask that you be just blessing Pastor and his wife as, as they're away, Lord, again, that you would just bless the family. And Father, that we would just focus right now on your word, your worship, just even my sitting and hearing your word, Lord, that you would bless uh, Robert as he teaches and Father, that we would just in turn be a blessing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you guys go ahead and have a seat? Or actually, why don't you go ahead and greet each other and say hello? You guys look at me like, wait a minute, we have to say hi to our neighbor. <laughs> well, as you know, we have a guest speaker today, Robert Baltadano. He uh, teaches uh, over every, uh, every week at Calvary Chapel Chino Valley, which is where we're going to have our men's study, guys, in case you didn't hear before. On the 18th, we have a men's breakfast over there. Um, but Robert teaches Sunday night called SNL, Sunday Night Light, or something life, whatever it is. He knows what it is, but nonetheless, why don't you go ahead and just uh, welcome Robert as he comes up. <laughs> good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning, and um, it's always a, a blessing to be part of uh, your service and to come here and to share the word. If you guys open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34, uh, we're going to be looking at Exodus 34, the first eight verses this morning. And the message this morning, I've titled the message, Who is God? Who is God? And we're going to be looking at Exodus 34, verses 1 through 8. And I'm going to read it so that we can get into our study afterwards. Exodus 34, verses 1 through 8. It says this, and the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai, and the Lord had, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and bounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. 
most people have an opinion about who God is, what he's like, and some even if he, have, if he even exists. Uh, maybe this morning you're here with that question in your mind, does God really exist? And maybe you haven't crossed over to being a Christian and you're sitting and going to church and you're wondering if God even exists or what God is really like. It's kind of one of those mysteries, uh, mysterious questions that people will have. But you've got to remember that your belief or disbelief in God will have drastic effects on how you live your life. In fact, your, your belief in God, whether you believe in God or not, will determine your priorities in life. How you view God will, will tell you how you're going to live your life. If you believe in God, then you have, you know, this fear of God or this reverence towards God. So it's going to change your life. But if you don't believe in God, then you're going to live the way you want to live. And it's interesting because this is something you see throughout our nation and throughout the world, that there are a lot of people that have different views about who God is. And it's a big question that people will ask. I read recently that they said that 89% of Americans believe in God. Now think about that. 89% of Americans believe in God. What does that mean, right? What does it mean when it says they believe in God? So I did a little research on that and found this, that 9 in 10 Americans believe in a higher power, but only a slim majority believe in God as described in the Bible. This is why you have, as people will say, you know, 70-80% of people in America believe in God, but their belief in God is just a a higher power. It's a general understanding of God. There's a, a higher power. We believe that there's some type of creator in heaven, but they don't really understand or believe that God is a personal God, as you're going to see here in a moment. And that's what I want to look at this morning, is I want to answer the question, who is God? And I want to look at Exodus 34, and the first eight verses of Exodus 34 reveal to us who God is, but not because Moses tells you who God is, God tells us who he is. And isn't it fair to have him tell us who he is, rather than us trying to explain that to other people? Sometimes we get it wrong. And so today we're going to look at this, and this is all part of a kind of like a conclusion of chapter 33 of Exodus, where we see Moses requesting something for to God and he said this he said God please show me your glory what a great request right what a genuine request that Moses asked God in chapter 33 verse 18 show me your glory well guess what here in chapter 34 that is going to happen his request will be actually given he to and so in chapter 34 God instructs Moses to basically take two tablets And God is going to give Israel a second chance. Because remember, the first tablets that were created, what happened? Moses broke them when he came down from the mountain the first time, right? He found the children of Israel in a crazy sin. They were just doing things that were not right. They were worshiping a golden calf. And in the midst of that, they were basically doing some pretty detestable things. And of course, that made Moses upset. And he ended up breaking the commandments. And so verse 1, he says, take two tablets. There's no other than, this is no other than the Ten Commandments. And he says in verse 1, like the first ones. And God says, I'm going to write on these. And so it was God who was going to write on these tablets. It wasn't Moses who was going to write on these tablets. God did not ask Moses for his input. And Moses, tell me, how, how should we write these now? What should I add to make sure that my children do not sin? It wasn't about that. It was God who was going to write on the tablets. He didn't need Moses' input. 
It was God himself who was going to approve the actual uh, stones or the writing themselves. But the first ones in chapter 32, if you go with me to chapter 32 real quick, look at verse 12 or 16. We see very clearly in chapter 32 verse 16 that this was the work of God. Notice, now the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. It was God who wrote them down. Just like our Bible today, it was God who inspired men to write what we have today. It's not about us trying to write our own Bibles. There's a lot of different religions out there that add to the Bible. Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, they all add to the Scriptures. They all twist the Bible. They twist it to fit fit their theology, but they're not being fair. They're actually heretics, if you will, because of the fact that they're actually adding on to the revelation of God that contradicts what the Bible says about God. And so we see here very clearly that this was the work of God, not the work of Moses, not the work of any man. It was God himself who did this. And the covenant God had made with with the children of Israel had to do with keeping this law. And so they were under the law, and they were to obey God's law. And if they obeyed God's law, then things will go well with them. And so we see here that Moses had broken the first two tablets because they were in sin. They broke the law. And now we see here that the Lord requires Moses to cut two stones. You get the stones. And since you broke the first ones, now you're going to pick them out, but the Lord would be the one writing on it. And notice what happens in verses 2 and 3, what it says there. God says, so be ready in the morning and come up, he says, in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourselves to me there on the top of the mountain. God is saying to Moses, hey, get ready. Get ready because I'm going to do something cool. I'm going to do something very interesting and very, very miraculous, basically. And so God sets boundaries. Notice what he sets in verse 3. He says, listen, no man shall come up with you. Let no man, he says, be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. A very different scene than the first time. See, the first time that Moses went up to Mount Sinai, Joshua went up with him. There were men on the base of the mountain. This time God says, I don't want anybody near the mountain. Not even cattle, not even, not even, you know, animals grazing because if that was the case then that means that farmers would be with those animals and that wouldn't be a good thing and so God says I want nobody close to this mountain but I want you to get ready and so what happens well he's wanting nobody there no shepherds no 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 assistant with Moses it was just Moses himself and so the the mountain had to be set apart because God is holy and he's going about to do something pretty incredible so what is what happens notice in verse 5 it says this. Now the Lord, actually verse 4, so it says, so, so it says, so he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stones. It says that Moses rose early in the morning. He was excited. And God spoke to him, says, hey, get ready in the morning. This is what's going to happen. How excited would you be if God told you the night before church, hey, get to church tomorrow because I'm going to speak to your heart. How many of you would be like, I can't wait to get up. I, I'm going to be at church. God said he's going to do something in my life, right? We'd be excited. And so we see here that God told Moses, hey, 
Wake up in the morning. This is what's going to happen. Moses did not waste any time. He got up early in the morning. And then it says there in verse 5, this is where it says, Then it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. You know, it's interesting to me that when you look at clouds in the Bible, when you look at this, in the Bible, clouds are a symbol of the presence of God. When you get to a place where there's a cloud, most of the time it's in reference to the presence of God. Let me give you some examples real quickly. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, God again descended on a cloud there in Mount Sinai. In Exodus 13, verses 21 to 22, God led Israel during the daytime in a cloud, a pillar of cloud in the daytime. In 2 Chronicles chapter, two, chapter 7, verse 2, God filled Solomon's temple, and it was a cloud. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, we see that Mary was overshadowed, and at the conception of Jesus, there was a cloud in the midst there. In Acts chapter 1, it says Jesus ascended up on a cloud. Again, the symbol of God's presence. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, a cloud will be present at the return of Jesus Christ. And here we see in chapter 34, the presence of God associated with clouds. Here he comes upon it. What Moses is about to experience here is a divine visitation of the presence or dwelling of God on earth. He's about to witness something very spectacular. And it says there in verse 6 and 7, notice, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, and he says, gracious. He says, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. He says, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. God all of a sudden reveals himself to Moses in a very miraculous way. You know what this tells me? This tells me that God wants to be known. You know, God could have easily stayed in heaven and just spoken to Moses from there. But instead, God comes down and meets Moses. He meets with Moses, and this is what, this what makes God a personal God, because he comes to us. You know, God could have stayed in heaven and said, Hey, you want to get to heaven, you got to come up yourself. I'm not going to come down and get you. But he didn't do that, right? He came and sent who? Jesus to walk on this earth in the person of, 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 of God, in the person of, of, of God, and he came to relate to us and walked among us. And so that makes God very personal. He wants to be known. And it's totally different than all the other religions that we have today, where God is up there and you're down here. There's no relationship, there's no aspect of relationship in a lot of these world religions. It's, it's God's way up there, and there's no relationship with God at all. They think it's weird that you talk to God. They think it's weird that you can ask things uh, for, uh, of God, and it's just they don't understand the concept of relationship. As Christians, we do. We, we know that God wants to relate with us on a personal level, and so we see here that that is what God is doing. He wants to be known. So here we see God, uh, Moses gets what he requested. He wants to see his glory, and so here's a proclamation of God's name. What does that mean? His character. God reveals his character, who he is. And, and God revealed as much of, uh, as his, uh, uh, of his glory as much as Moses can actually take. Why is that? Because it says in Exodus 33, verse 20, 
God says, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? God says, if, I, I can't show you my, myself 100% of who I am because you wouldn't make it. And so whatever God revealed to Moses was enough for Moses to take. He couldn't, do beyond, he couldn't go beyond that. And so what does he say in verse 6? It says that the Lord passed before him and he begins to proclaim. What God proclaimed is of utmost importance to, to Moses at this time. And in fact, the proclamation here, the word proclaim means that Moses saw and heard something. This was not a subjective experience. This wasn't a feeling that Moses felt. I just felt God today. I felt God say this. It wasn't that. It was an objective reality that God himself revealed himself to Moses. He made himself loud and clear. Therefore, it was an objective experience. Moses did not come down from that mountain to tell people, I felt God. You know what I'm saying? Now, don't get me wrong. God uses our feelings to relate to us. I'm not saying that we should deny our feelings. But when it comes to Christianity, our Christian faith is an objective faith. You knew that, right? Our faith is in Christ's. You see, I'm not a Christian because it just feels good. I'm not a Christian because I just, there's just this feeling of burning in my bosom that just says, you're in the right spot. I'm a Christian because my faith is objective because there was a man by the name of Jesus Christ who walked on this earth. There are no historians on this earth unless they're really just against Christ so much that denies the existence of Christ on this earth. Most secular historians believe that there's a man by the name of Jesus that surely did walk on this earth. The question that they have or the problem is whether he's God or not. And so your faith as a Christian, my faith, is an objective faith. It's not based on a feeling. You're not a Christian because there was a feeling that you just felt good. No, it's because you know that Christ is real. And so this is what's happening here. We see that God reveals himself in this cloud. He proclaims himself in an objective way, like the burning bush experience. You know, again, Moses saw a visible manifestation of God through a burning bush. There was something that God gave him to see. And so we know that the Christian faith is an objective faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith. And so we see here that he begins to proclaim. Notice what he proclaims. The Lord, the Lord God. Very interesting uh, phrase. This is an incredible self-revelation of God to Moses. Uh, The repetition of this name, the Lord, the Lord God. uh, Some Hebrew scholars believe that it is to emphasize his immutability, meaning that God is unchanging. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God presents himself as the eternal, unchanging God. And it's awesome to see this because this is who God is. He doesn't need man to define or describe who he is. God is actually telling you and I right now, and Moses at the time, who he is. This is what God is doing. And so when you see the word Lord, capital letters, L-O-R-D, It is the very name of God, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It's I am that I am. He revealed himself with this name to Abraham, to the patriarchs, to Moses, to Joshua. When you you read your Bible and you see the capital letters, L-O-R-D, that is the covenant name of God. When you see the the capital L and the little O-R-D, that's Adonai, it's a, that's a different, it's more master. 
But here, when you see this capitalized, you're talking about the name of God, the covenant name of God, how he reveals himself to mankind. It's, a, it's the promised name of God, if you will. This name of God, which by Jewish uh, tradition is too holy to pronounce or too holy to voice, it's actually, spe- they spell it uh, Y-H-W-H. In the Hebrew, is yod heh vav it's so holy. And you've seen that, right? When you may be talking to a Jewish person, they will go G-D. You've seen that, right? God's name is so holy, according to their tradition, they can't even, they can't even voice it, pronounce it, spell it. They, 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 they have so much reverence towards the name of God. And we see here very clearly that this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. You know, Yahweh in the Old Testament, that name occurs 6,519 times. That's a lot of... Lot of ways God has presented himself. This name is used more than any other name of God, and it was first used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. God's name is vital to a proper understanding of God. We have to understand who God is. Knowing God should be the top priority of every human being, especially for us Christians. See, as a non-Christian, they should be seeking out who is God, as Christians, we should be growing the knowledge of our understanding of God. And this is what we see here, is that God is revealing himself to Moses in this way. You know, non-Christians today are enamored with God today, believe it or not. You know, you have Oprah, right, who's like a spiritualist, who has her understanding of God, right? You have other people that are out there, television shows that are not Christians, that are truly trying to seek who God is, but they come, with, uh, they come to wrong conclusions of who God is. Uh, there's this, this lady that I, I read about recently. She's a well-known philosopher. Her name is Nancy Abram, and uh, she's married to a world-renowned uh, cosmologist. This is not a non-Christian lady. She is seeking, basically, you know, who God is. She wants to know who God is, so she's actually done her own research. And she's come to her own understanding of who God is. And she begins to write about this. And I'm reading this and I'm like, wow, that's pretty interesting how she's come up with this definition of God according to what she believes God is, who God is. And so she wrote a book called A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. Right there tells you a lot, right? You're like, okay. She said this and I quote, God is arguably the most powerful concept in the human mind. But there is no single idea of God. Rather, they've been evolving nonstop for thousands of years. And she says this, there are five things we need to accept to truly understand God. She says, one, God could not have existed before the universe. Two, God did not create the universe. Three, God cannot know everything. Four, God cannot intend everything that happens. And five, God cannot violate the laws of nature. According to her, for you and I to understand who God is, you have to understand these things. You have to know these things. And what does she do here? She literally collapses. She destroys the character of God right there, doesn't she? And this woman is having huge conferences with thousands of men and women in the audience, and she's telling them these things. So our world is a religious world. Non-Christians are out there trying to understand God, like Nancy is, 
but they're all coming to the wrong conclusion. Where does she get this information? Barnes and Noble? You've gone to their, their religious section, right? Boy, you've got books all over the place, right? People writing about God. I mean, lawyers and atheists and agnostics and then so-called religious men. And then you pick up these books and you look at their titles and it's all about this crazy understanding of who God is because they don't know God. Why? Because they're not going here. They're coming up with their own understanding of God. They're very religious. They're interested in who God is, but they don't understand God. They come to wrong conclusions. Yet we see clearly, though, that... In Romans chapter 1, verse 23, these are brilliant people that are writing books. And Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, always comes to my mind when I read things like this, like Lady Nancy Abram. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They're professing to be wise. They are wise people. They're intelligent. They're not dumb people. But yet, because they deny God, they become fools. See, that's the secular world for you. The world has many spiritual people, but they fall short of the truth of God. Now, we can all say, yes, you're right, Robert. That is so true. Yep, secular people, they think they know God, but they really don't. But did you know that there's a dangerous movement within Christianity today that are pretty much destroying the identity of God as well? There's a trend today. A, a movement in the church where church leaders are attempting to redefine God for the purpose of making it more, you know, easy for people to understand God. They begin to redefine church. They begin to redefine Christianity. No, that was back in the old days. Oh, the New Testament, that was old. We're in a new culture here. We need to redefine the way we reach people in America. I get that, and I understand that. There are a lot of people that are probably different when it comes to Christianity. So you reach out differently to them, but you never exchange the truth, right? So this movement begins to redefine God. It's a popular theological trend today. They're, they're, they're rethinking of God, and people, what they're doing is they're stealing the identity of God. What do you mean by that? Well, you know what identity theft is. Identity theft is somebody stealing your social security number, personal information, and they misrepresent you in order to make purchases in your, main, in your name. It's not you. I know that happened one time. I was, uh, we were at home, and I get a phone call from the uh, credit card company, and they said that uh, there was this um, you know, person that is making a, a charge of $2,000 in his clothing and all kinds of stuff. It was at one of those department stores, big department stores. And they call us, my wife and I, and they said, you know, uh, is this you? I mean, this is what's happening. And at first I have to check if my wife's at home. Say, She's here, right? Okay, so it's not my wife. And I said, nope, it's not. And so they canceled the transaction right then on the spot. Somebody who is misrepresenting you, and that is what's taking place and what happens when God's identity is stolen, they take God's name and they use it to represent something that is not really him. That is a very dangerous place to be. People that come to a pulpit like this and preach the Bible to you, they better know what they're saying. They better get it from here because I would never want to be in a spot where I am misrepresenting God. I'm stealing his identity. I'm saying this is who God is and it's not him. 
And we see that this is a trend that's happening within our churches today. And unfortunately, people are getting duped with the theology that's out there. You know, some make God into a universalistic God, that all roads lead to God. This is within churches today. That no, 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 it's no longer that way anymore. No, anybody can get to heaven. It doesn't matter who you are, what you believe in. That's universalism. And if you listen to some of the teachings today in some churches, you're like, that's universalism. Some churches promote a Burger King God who says, have it your way. Basically, hey, all sin is acceptable. Love trumps all judgment. It's, it's not a sin. Let's just say it's just the life I chose to live. Leave me alone. That's the Burger King God. See, these beliefs are misrepresentations of God. I, I call these false identities. I, I, I call these designer gods is what you see today. Designer gods. You know, you hear people say, well, if Jesus was on earth today, he'd be wearing skinny jeans too. Really? I don't think Jesus would care. But, but they try to bring Jesus into the culture that Jesus would be so culturally relevant and this and that. You know what? Christ was all about sharing the truth with sinners and, and Pharisees. He proclaimed the truth. And we see here that this is something that is happening in our world. And so we as Christians must ensure that our understanding of God is accurate. Lest we slip into false doctrine. We have to be very careful. So where do we go to have an accurate understanding of God? You go here. The Bible. That's where you're safe. It's to go to the Bible and find out who God is. You begin in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You start there. You believe that first verse. The rest of the Bible will be easy. You have a problem with verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1. Then you're going to have a hard time reading the rest of the Bible. And unfortunately, a lot of people stop there. And say, I can't believe that. I don't think God created this earth. Right there, there's going to be an issue throughout the rest of the Bible. And then they take off and begin to try to figure out God outside the Bible. And that's where they ended up, they end up getting into false doctrine. The Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, begins with God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, the Bible doesn't try to prove the existence of God. The Bible already assumes the existence of God right off the bat. They're not trying to believe in God. This is God did create. Trust us. No, it's like there's a God. He created the heavens and the earth. People can speculate as to who God is in philosophy, but God himself tells us who he is, his distinctive, most essential qualities. So what does he say? Who who is he? That's the question that I'm answering today. Who is God? Well, let's look at verse 6. He gives us several things to tell us who he is. Notice verse 6. It says here, The Lord passed... And proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, here it is, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Let's stop there. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. These words are quoted throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is pretty, pretty consistent throughout the entire Bible. They are the heart of the very self-revelation of God to man. God always reveals himself with this, that he tells you, hey, I am merciful, I am gracious, I am long-suffering, I abound in goodness and truth. Let's look at those. What do those mean? Well, some Hebrew scholars believe and they point out that all the words that I just read to you in the Hebrew language are actually crowded together. And what I mean by that, they say, is that it's used here to express the idea of God's grace in its various manifestations to us. 
And it's interesting because merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth is all speaking about his grace. It's proclaiming his grace. The words pile upon each other to express the gracious nature of God towards us. So let me define these for you. Let's look at the first one. He says, I am merciful. The word in your Bible perhaps says compassionate. That's really what the word means. And what the word means here is from the Hebrew word raham, which is the same root word for womb. And what it means here is that this word describes the tender love of a mother for the child who came from her womb. What is this saying about God? What is he revealing about himself? He's revealing this, that God has that compassionate parent-type love for us. He's compassionate. I'm a parent. I have a three-year-old and a seven-year-old. I love my kids. Perhaps you're a a parent. You love your kids. Yeah, they can be jerks at times, right? It can be hard to handle. But it is what it is. It comes to the territory, right? You can't program your kids to be good. It happens. But you love your kids. And there's a compassion heart towards them. Even when they're not doing well, even when they're being disobedient, I still love my kids. I have that parent type of love towards my kids. God has a parent type of love toward us. And, and what that means is that he actually has compassion. He has compassion towards us. Let me give you some verses in Scripture that show how much he loves us when it comes to that parent type love. Uh, Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Listen to what Jesus said. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would have none of it. Did you see that? Jesus has that parent love to bring those chicks under the wing like that ch- the chicken does to her babies. Psalm 103.13, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Think about it. The God that you serve, the God that you love, the God that you worship, his compassion towards you is like a father. He's our heavenly father. He's the perfect father. And he loves us that way. And he can relate to us in so uh, in a deep way as a, as a parent. Notice, though, he says, not only am I merciful, but he says he's gracious. That word is kanan, where we get our name Hannah or John. And the root means to bend or to be inclined. It means to be inclined to help someone. And so what God is saying, he's saying, I'm not only merciful, but he's saying God is gracious to us. He is inclined to want to help us. He's inclined to want to help us. And sometimes we think God is not wanting to help us. But he does want to help us. You know, even Jesus gave that invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is what? Light. Jesus says, listen, you're carrying a burden. Come to me. I want to help you. You come home from work. Your, your brain is bogged down with, with a bunch of stuff that went down at work. Perhaps you have something going on in your family life, and you're just burdened. You're, you're going through a lot. And Jesus is saying to you, listen, why are you carrying that stuff? Come to me. I want to help you. That's the God that we serve. Not only is he merciful, not only does he parent you with compassion, but he wants 
to help you. He's inclined to help you. God is not up in heaven saying, I'm sorry, I, I don't have time for you right now. I'm listening to all the stories that Billy Graham is sharing with me right now. No, I, the moment you say, Jesus, can you help me? He will help you. Don't deny the help of Christ. He wants to help you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that, don't you? It says, go to the throne of grace. Remember, the throne was a throne of mercy. It was a throne of judgment. God says, no, it's a throne of grace because I am going to give you what you don't deserve. I'm giving you grace. Mercy is the opposite. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. We have a God who is gracious and merciful, who gives us what we don't deserve and who withholds what we deserve. And so God says, go boldly to the throne of grace. It's a grace, not a throne of judgment. Sometimes we think that God is going to judge us. Oh, no, I can't. I just failed God. He's going to smash me. I can't do this. And, and then all of a sudden, the enemy has that person running the other way. That's not the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to go to the throne of grace. One of my commentaries, uh, commentaries said this, and I quote, God cares when he doesn't even have to care. He cares when he doesn't get anything out of the relationship. He cares when you, when you can't even repay him for what he's done in your life. He cares without any ulterior motives. That should give you a lot of peace. That God cares for you. And it doesn't matter if you can't repay him. You know, we as human beings, we're, we're kind of like the other way, right? We'll care for people. And you're like, okay, I care for you. You better take care of me too. And, and we, we, we put, you know, these, these, these rules and whatever it is it, that our relationship with each other sometimes is so flawed and God doesn't deal with us that way. He, he'll help us and he helps us and will help us and will help us. Notice what he says. Not only is he merciful, not only is he gracious, but he says he's long-suffering. Your Bible might say slow to anger. That means that God is patient with us. Someone once put it this way, God has a long fuse. Have you ever been around people with short fuses? Aren't they scary? You just never know when they're going to blow up. You may be having a fun time with them, excited and talking, all of a sudden they just blow up. You're like, whoa, uh, what did I do? What did I say? It's scary sometimes, right? It's not comfortable to be around people with short temper. God has a long fuse. And, and, and his record, his track record proves it. I mean, you look at, throughout the Bible, the things that people did in front of him, and God did not come down from heaven and strike him dead, right? At times, there were some incidences where he did. But most of the time, God was very patient. God has a long fuse. Be glad. Be very glad. What else does he say? Notice, it says, he's abounding in goodness. That word could actually be interpreted loving kindness. It's the word in Hebrew, chesed. It is one of the most marvelous words in the Hebrew vocabulary. It means to be faithful, to be loyal, to show goodness and mercy. Not because the object deserves it, but because the giver chooses to give it. Isn't that incredible? God is loving kindness. He is good. No wonder David said in Psalm 23, verse 6, at the end of that psalm, he said, Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
Can you say that? I mean, uh, David, who went through a lot, right? David, who committed adultery. David, who committed murder. David, who was a liar, could say, after all of that, that the mercy of God, the goodness of God will still follow me. I think that's cool. It says that God abounds in goodness, in loving kindness. In other words, there is no shortage of God's love. There's no shortage of God's love. This is the best Hebrew, uh, the best the Hebrew language has to offer in describing the gracious nature of God. You see, this is, this is an incredible word in the Bible. When, when we try to describe God or his attributes, you know, we have a hard time trying to communicate this to people, trying to communicate God's love because God is so huge. And even Paul the Apostle said this, and he couldn't even describe everything. In Romans eleven thirty three, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. He says, I just can't go beyond that. God is telling Moses, this is who I am. But there's another side of God that God wants Moses to actually understand as well. God is gracious. God is loving. But he's also a God of justice. Notice what he says in verse 7. In verse 7, he says it very clearly. He says, keeping mercy for those, uh, for, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but notice, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. His loving and gracious character does not counsel out his righteousness. God forgives. Understand that. He forgives. And Moses knows that God has a forgiving heart because here he's given the children of Israel a second chance because there's tablets that are being written here again. But when he says here the third and fourth generation here, I read that this means this is a common Semitic idiom to express continuance. That God is continually doing this. God is slow to punish. He gives people a chance to get right with him. But if we don't and we refuse to get right with God, then we will pay for our sin, the consequences of our sins. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. But God does give people a chance to get right with him. And, and you cannot hide behind the religious, uh, uh, you know, things that, that you're like, well, I'm just a religious person. Hopefully God will let me into heaven. It's not about being religious. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about having a relationship with Jesus. If you're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you have nothing. You're on your own until you finally get your life right with God. It's not about, well, my background is I've had this. No, it's, do you know Christ? It's all about that. And we see here very clearly that God says it very clearly that it's, it's, he's a God of justice. He's slow to punish. You know, we see it very clearly in the life of the Assyrians when God called Jonah to preach to the, to the Ninevites. And you remember that the Assyrians were very vicious people. They were horrible people, and yet God was going to give them a chance to repent and was going to use Jonah to go and preach against them. And he did eventually, and what happened? They turned and they repented. But later on in the book of Nahum, we find out that the Ninevites went back and were eventually judged. But we see clo- close, uh, clearly here that Moses, now in verse 8, as we come to the end here, Moses reacts to the revelation of God. Notice what he does in verse 8. Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and what? Worshipped. Moses didn't question 
what God revealed to him. Well, God, well, why you? No. He just went down on his face and he just said, God, you are who you are. And he worshiped God. Moses was reminded of who God is. He knew he was not equal to God. He knew that he was the servant and he knew that he had to let God be God alone. And so we see very clearly that Isaiah had the similar reaction when God revealed himself. When Isaiah said, woe is me for I am undone. He didn't question what he saw. The Apostle Paul, when he encountered Jesus in Acts chapter 9, he didn't question who, you know, why are you doing this to me? What did he say? Who are you, Lord? Great question. And Jesus revealed himself to Paul. He thought he knew God, but he didn't. Another prominent servant of God, and I shared earlier, was Jonah. When God revealed himself to Jonah to go and preach, Jonah did not respond the way Moses the way Paul, the way Isaiah, to the character of God, he actually had a hard time with God's character. He said this in Jonah 4.2. He says, For I know you are gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding, uh, and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. He had an issue with the character of God. Do you have issues with the loving, the loving nature of Christ? I mean, sometimes we may have that, you know. Like, I don't want that person saved, Lord. I can't believe it. I knew it, Lord. Your love is just, I can't stand it. That's what, that's what Jonah did. It's like, I knew who you, I mean, Jonah understood God's character. And he was mad that God was loving and merciful. That's pretty bad, isn't it? And so we are to worship him because of his care, for his character. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This should always be our response when we are confronted with the amazing character of God, his attributes. This revelation of God to Moses forever puts away the idea that we have a bad God in the Old Testament and a good God in the New Testament. It totally closes the door on that because God's love and mercy and grace is present in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. The difference with us in the New Testament is that we're under a different covenant and we're under Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ's. But he's the same God who still requires a sacrifice. The God that you see in the Old Testament is the same God that we're worshiping today. But the thing is this, is that God provided his sacrifice. Who was it? It was Jesus. And because of Christ, we stand redeemed and justified. Without Jesus Christ, we have no sacrifice. We are going to basically just become our own sacrifice. And that's what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death destruction. It's a done deal. So we need to be under Christ and under his blood. And so Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 is a fulfillment of Christ himself. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus dwelt among us. The word dwelt is where we get the word tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was moved around all the time, but now we have Christ, and we see that the same Jesus is the Christ that we worship today. In Christ, we see the visible manifestation of God himself in the second person of the Trinity. John said in John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And so, let me conclude with a few remarks, a few thoughts. We have a wonderful picture of God here. In the Bible. I I remember Philip's request to Jesus in the New Testament. He said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, 
and it is sufficient for us. It's like, Lord, just, just give us a glimpse of God. What did Jesus say? Sure, here you go. Bloop. No, he didn't do that, right? What did he say? Notice, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? What is he saying? He's saying, Philip, as you're staring at me, you're staring at God. Jesus even said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What he does is what I do here. I don't do anything in contradiction to the Father in heaven. Philip had the visible manifestation of God before him. Isn't that wild? We didn't. But the Bible says, Jesus said in John 17, Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. That's you and me. These guys had God in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ. And maybe tonight you're saying, man, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I know God. I don't know if I know Jesus. What is going on here? I mean, I, I thought I knew God, but listen, there's always chance to know God. There's always time for that. God wants to reveal himself to every person, and yet sometimes people will reject him and don't want him. They want to live their life. See, the good news is this, is that God is still gracious, he's still merciful, he's still long-suffering, and he's ready to pardon your sin. And that's the cool thing about it, that God is a loving God, a forgiving God. The, The gracious nature of God should give you and I confidence to call upon God for help and for the non-Christian for salvation because God is always there willing to save people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you yourself revealed yourself to Moses and to us through the Bible. That, Lord, we don't have to read other books, but, Lord, we can just go to the main book, the Bible, to have a better picture of who you are. And Lord, help us to have that understanding of you, the correct understanding of you, to know you, to honor you. Perhaps there are some of you in here today, and I'm just going to ask for you to keep your heads down and your eyes closed. I want to pray for some of you here. And I want to pray that for two groups here. Uh, One is I want to pray for the Christians who are here. You've been revealed by God his character. and Perhaps you've been denying that. You've been maybe not asking God to help you. You've been trying to live your life on your own without allowing the gracious heart of God to be in your life. And, and you need prayer. You, you want to relate to God on a more personal level. Maybe that's something that, is, that has been kind of lacking in your life. And, and if you're here this morning and you want me to pray for you to have a closer walk with Jesus, raise your hand. I want to pray for you. God bless you, sir. God bless you, ma'am. God bless you. Lord Jesus, I pray for those that raised their hands. And I pray, God, that you will reveal yourself as you did today, but that you will reveal yourself in a most awesome way to them personally, who they are, their personality, their character, even with their glitches and their flaws, so they can understand who you are and to walk with you, Lord, and to love you and to honor you, Lord. I hope and pray that this revelation of you to Moses has given them, Lord, your children here this morning, an encouragement to really, really get involved in this relationship with you and to honor you and love you. And for those of you, another group I want to pray for, if you're here this morning and you are not where you're supposed to be, and God has not been your, your God. You've been living your life the way you've been living your life, and today God revealed himself to you 
how much he loves you, he cares for you, and he wants you to be right with him. If you're here this morning and you want to get your life right with God, I want to pray for you. Would you raise your hand? Anybody here? God bless you, sir. God bless you, ma'am. God bless you, ma'am. I'm going to pray for you, and I want you to repeat this in your own heart. I want you to say this. God, forgive me of my sins. I received Jesus as my Lord and my Savior this morning. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to reveal yourself to me in a wonderful way in my personal life. To give me encouragement to walk with you daily. To honor you and to love you. And I also pray, Lord, that you help me to be filled with your Holy Spirit and to walk with you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. And Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for the saints of Calvary Chapel, Ontario. Continue to do the work you're doing in this, in this place, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen. God bless you guys. Let's all stand together. If you were one of the people that raised your hand, just listen to these words and just let it minister to you. And if you weren't, just remember that time.
Have a blessed day. There'll be a couple up front for prayer.